Let's pray as we continue to worship and get into the Word together. Father, thank you for uh, the occasion that you've given to us once again this night. Lord, we never want to stop ever being thankful, Lord, for this very simple but incredible privilege to be able to still freely gather to worship you, to be able to study the Word of God, to be able to dwell in a place, Lord, where it's relatively still safe and permissible to do the very thing that we're doing tonight. And Lord, in light of that, we just lift up brothers and sisters in Christ who love you just as much, Lord, maybe sometimes more than we do, that don't have the same privilege that we're enjoying right now. And we pray you continue to bless them and strengthen them. And Lord, we thank you for their great example of their deep faith, Lord, of how dedicated they are. And Lord, how they just greatly desire to assemble together, Lord, and still do such in the midst of such difficulty. Lord, bless, strengthen the persecuted church, we pray. Be with them and help them to continue to love and serve you. And, and we ask tonight as, Lord, we're here, we believe that your word is true as we draw near to you. You said you draw near to us. So do that now as we continue to worship, as we open the word of God. Lord, we believe that you are going to draw near by taking your word that's alive and powerful and somehow applying it to our heart in a personal way. So teach us, Lord. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of you as our Lord and Savior. Instruct us, teach us, speak to us by your Spirit's ministry and through your word. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. 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 Okay, Joshua chapter 1, if you'll join me there. Last time we began a new study together in the book of Joshua here. We went down about as far as verse 9 or so and sort of talked about a number of introductory things about Joshua himself and uh, what the book of Joshua is about. If you weren't able to be with us during that last study, certainly might benefit you to be able to uh, listen to that uh, recorded message available on the website there to just sort of have a foundation as we begin this new book together. Again, Joshua sort of begins a new uh, section really in the scripture of the historical books of the Bible and really a transitional book as Moses has now died and Joshua, his successor, sort of takes the reins of leadership and will now lead the next generation uh, actually into the promised land. He'll be the one to guide them through their battles as they conquer the land and they experience both defeats but primarily, thankfully, victories over their enemies and they take territory that God has intended to give to them. Uh, and again, as we said, just these many beautiful pictures of how uh, Jesus is our Joshua. And Moses, of course, is typically a representation of the law and Joshua, Jesus, is in a sense pictured in so much, uh, many ways, the life of Joshua. And even as Moses was not able to bring them into the promised land, but Joshua was the one that did that. Well, in the same way, the law of God, or trying to live by the law, will never allow us to enter into the promises of God. It's only Jesus who can bring us into the promised life of the Spirit. It's only Jesus who can bring us into that life of victory in the Spirit where we overcome our enemies and we conquer territories spiritually. And so, again, just many beautiful pictures uh, we'll see as we're going through the book of Joshua together. But again, understanding the fears, the apprehensions Joshua would have, let's do this. Uh, let me just read again verse 1 through 9 because we sort of left off there to just relay that backdrop. And then we'll pick up right there in verse 10 and move onward. But let me just read again verses 1 through 9 to give us our context of what's taking place. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying to him, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. And no man shall be able to stand before you or against you, the idea is, all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous 
that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go so verse 1 through 9 we get this personal word from the Lord encouraging Joshua no doubt as he's feeling weak in what lays in front of him realizing I don't know how I'm going to do this I know what God's calling me to do I know what's the right thing to do I know what it means to obey God but I feel weak in my own strength I don't know how I possibly could and I'm afraid I'm terrified there are things that are concerning me that I'm worried about and the Lord therefore saying to him Joshua I don't want you to be weak because I will be with you and I will be your power and I'll be your strength. You don't have to worry about your strength. I know the limitation of your strength, but you be strong because you can be strong in the Lord because I'm going to be with you. And Joshua, you don't have to be afraid because I'll be with you and I'll be your defense and I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you or forsake you. Others may, others will, but Joshua, I'll be with you. And it's the presence of the Lord that was going to be with Joshua is really what was the antidote for his ability to overcome his fears and his own personal weaknesses in the same way for us. Uh, We certainly cannot live this Christian life alone. Uh, And it's such a wonderful thing to realize, listen, one of the beautiful things that we have in Christianity is the Lord tells us how to live, but then he helps us to live that way. That is the one unique thing that we have in Christianity that other world religions sadly don't offer. They may have a holy book or may they have certain statements or ideals live according to this way, but every other so-called religious leader is dead in a tomb, in a pot, somehow passed off the scene. They may have said some good things, but there's no power available to the life of the followers to live that way. The difference in Christianity is we have a risen Lord. We have a living Savior who says, live this way, and then he says, and by my power and life and presence within you, I will help you to live that way. So he calls us to live a certain way, but he says, I know you can't do it on your own. I'm going to live within you. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to help you by my spirit to conquer the enemies of your flesh, to overcome sin, to take territory, to be able to live a successful, prosperous, fruitful Christian life. And here Joshua is getting that encouragement. Joshua, it's time now to take the land. I'll be with you as I was with Moses. He says, this is the territory. Every place you set the sole of your foot, I've already given it to you, but you now have to cooperate. You have to lead the people in and guide them in as their general and their shepherd leader to go and to take the territory that God had given to them. So he gets this word from the Lord of what he was to do and again because he was a leader and he heard from the Lord uh, there was no need at this point to confer with others Joshua's one responsibility at this point was to obey the Lord and to provide strong leadership listen there's a time to seek out counsel the Bible says safety is found in the multitude of counselors Uh, but there's also a time where when God has told you what to do you just need to be strong and courageous and do it Uh, and begin to move forward and this is where Joshua is at at this point he's heard from God the word is clear the direction is final so therefore verse 10 says then Joshua notice commanded the officers of the people that is the you know fellow leaders underneath him who were overseeing different groups of people and said to them verse 11 notice pass through the camp and command the people saying prepare provisions for yourselves For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So uh, it seems there was a a very efficient uh, means of communication here where Joshua calls together the leadership. 
He gives them the word of what was to be passed through the camp so they could then disperse that information. And notice basically the word of this hour, once God told them what to do, verse 11, is he says, pass through the camp and tell the people, prepare, get ready. Because in, within a three-day span, he says, God's plan is going to come to pass. In a very short window of time, God is going to do what you've been waiting for God to do all this time. You've been waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. And he says, we're now on the edge. God is about to unfold his plans and purposes. So he says, prepare for yourselves because you're about to cross over and go in and possess what God's intended to give to you and what you've been waiting for. And listen, th there comes a time where when we begin to sense that maybe what God has for us is on the horizon, that our part is to participate by preparing, by doing things perhaps that uh, practically allow us to be prepared to step into what God has for us in the next season. They're going from being outside the land and wandering in the wilderness. And again, this is a book of transition. They're now going to cross the Jordan and go into the land. It's time for a new season a new destination, a new experience, a, a new way of living altogether. The manna is going to stop falling from the sky. Up to this point, every day, God brought manna. As soon as they get into the land, the manna is going to cease and they're going to live off the fruit. So God says, listen, things are about to change. There's going to be a transition. This is something new. And God says, therefore, your responsibility is you need to prepare and get ready for the change that God's about to bring. And I don't know what God's doing in your life, but sometimes there comes that sense from the Lord. Sometimes there comes that very clear instruction from the Lord. Things are about to change. You need to prepare and go into action. Prepare what's necessary. Do what you need to do. And then go in and experience what God intends to give for you. And maybe if you're sensing God has something on the horizon begin preparing prepare yourself put things in order do what you need to do because perhaps you're about to cross over into something new even as israel was here in just a few days verse 12 he then speaks and says to the reubenites the gadites and the half tribe of manasseh remember those were the two and a half tribes that had asked permission we saw earlier in our studies through uh, the bible that they had asked permission to remain on the eastern side of the jordan they didn't want to go into the land they said hey this land is good for cattle raising and it seems good to dwell in we, we don't quite want to go into the land and as moses sought wisdom from god Remember, God then said to Moses, well, if this is what they want to do, they want to, in a sense, settle for less. You can grant them permission to do it, uh, yet they do have a responsibility that they still need to go in and fight the battles with their brothers uh, until they obtain the victory of the land for themselves, and then they can return back and settle on the eastern side. And we'll see as we go forward, that doesn't fare too well for them long term because when they settle outside of God's best, they become the most vulnerable and the first one to fall to enemy attacks because they settled outside of the perfect will of God and settling for less never usually works out well spiritually. But now there's going to be this exhortation from Joshua to these two and a half tribes. He's going to say to them, look at verse 13, remember, he says, the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying to you, the Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land, the land they asked for on the eastern side. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass over before your brethren armed all your mighty men of valor, notice, and help them. That's a key. I have that circled. And help them until, verse 15, the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then, after that, you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So Joshua here exhorts these two and a half tribes, notice, basically to be faithful to their word and to the commitment they made. This was a commitment they made under Moses' discussion with them when they requested to stay on the eastern side. God said, okay, they, they can have that if that's what they desire, but their responsibility is they must go over and help fight the battles until the land is conquered for the other nine and a half tribes. So basically Joshua here, he's reminding them of the word of the Lord. 
He's reminding them of a commitment they had made because they said, okay, we'll do that. We promise when it's time to go into the land, we'll go in and help fight the battles. We'll leave our wives and children over on the other side and we'll go fight the battles for a season of time. So he's reminding them here with an exhortation to honor their word, to fulfill their commitment. And again, this is something we all should do. Sometimes we need to be reminded of it, but we shouldn't need to be reminded of it. When we give our word to do something, we should follow through with it. And if we've promised to do something or said that we'll comply in some way, uh, we should, in a sense, fulfill that obligation and share in our part of a responsibility. And their responsibility, you notice what's being described here in these verses, again, is they were responsible to participate in the battles and to help fight the battles until the fullness of God's inheritance was experienced for the remainder of the congregation. So they weren't to sit outside passively and say, look, well, if you want those territories and you want to have victory, you know, you, you know, we, we don't really need it. So we're going to stay over here. You just go fight the battles on your own. What God said is, no, you're responsible to participate in the battle to help bring your fellow congregants, your fellow believers into the fullness of the victory of God's promise for their lives. They needed to engage and serve in that way to ensure victory for the entire rest of the congregation. Now, I think this is a really beautiful picture here. It's a good reminder that for all of us as God's people, as a part of a congregation today, collectively as the church, we have, in a sense, a, a shared responsibility to engage in the things of the Lord, to fight the Lord's battles, to participate, to be involved in the things of God and what God's doing, not just for our sake, but for everyone else's sake. And to the extent that we participate and engage in the Lord's battles, we help bring fellow believers into the victory and the fullness that God wants for their lives. Such an important concept for us to grasp as the body of Christ and understanding our role as an individual member of the body of Christ that as a Christian, biblically, it's not just about me and it's not just about you. It's about us. It's about us. And that's how we're to operate as a family of believers. The Bible teaches that our lives are individually members of one another. Yes, we're individual Christians, but we are members of one another. When one member suffers, we all suffer. One member rejoices, we all rejoice. But there is this necessity, just like a human body, of all the parts contributing and doing their share. If one part of my organ system decides to just shut down or take a break, the whole rest of my body suffers as a result. And in the same way in the body of Christ, if one of us becomes spiritually passive or spiritually disobedient or begins to shrink back from engaging in the fullness of fighting the Lord's battles and being in the battle, if you would, spiritually, we cause everybody else to struggle and to suffer. And other people aren't helped in the way they need to be helped to experience the victories and the fullness of all that God wants for them. We are to be involved in the things of God and participating not just for our sake, but to ensure the help that other people need spiritually. So as that pertains, perhaps let's say to, you know, serving the Lord or, or being in worship and being together with God's people, it's not just a matter of, well, do I need to be at worship? I mean, I don't know. I feel pretty strong this week, so I don't know if I need to be at worship. I mean, I, I think I can, can get by this week without being, listen, it's not just about me. It's about I need to be there for other people. This changes the whole mindset, really, of, if you would, why we assemble and why we even go to church, for example, as Christians. I don't, per se, come to church for my sake or for my sake alone. I should be coming to church as a fellow Christian for the sake of other people, for the sake of other people. That's why I should be going. I should be there because I have something not just to receive because if that's the mentality, then I can say, well, I don't think I really need anything at this point. I think I'm good enough. But if my mentality is no, I need to go to give, to serve, to be a blessing, to help other people experience the fullness, then all of a sudden church takes on a whole different mindset. I go because others need me to go. 
I go so that I can encourage somebody or serve somehow or be a blessing or quite frankly be available that if there's a need that I can step in and let God use my life and that's how the body builds itself and has overall victory. You know, this reminds me of what Paul says actually in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just read you one verse from there where Paul's talking about how the body of Christ it comes to the unity of the, of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and as we grow in maturity to the fullness of Christ, he says this, Ephesians 4.16, listen to it. He says, the whole body joined and knit together, listen, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do you see that New Testament truth there? God says that we are interconnected spiritually, joined together, and every joint has something to supply. That every one of us has an important purpose in the body of Christ. Whether it's some official role of, hey, this is my actual ministry, or whether it's in just a very informal way, just being there, to be an encouragement to someone else. So somebody else can look down the aisle and say, hey, they're here today too, and they're worshiping the Lord, and they see it valuable to serve Jesus. And, and whatever it may be, he says here that the effective working by which every part does its share. God says, my design is that every single Christian has a share in the process of ministry of building each other up, ministering to one another. And he says, when every part does its share, listen, it causes growth of the body for the edifying building itself up in love, which seems to indicate to me when every part does its share, the body of Christ grows. When people aren't doing their share, it stunts the growth of the body of Christ. When Christians choose, as sometimes they do, to be spiritually selfish, lazy, apathetic, take a few weeks off of church here and there, or whatever. I, you know, I'm good, I, you know, I did a home church thing, I remember, I'm a strong Christian, I don't need to be there. What they don't realize, sincerely, what they don't, or when they don't engage in ministry or say, hey, how can I contribute, how can I engage and serve in some way? And they shrink back, so instead, one person is doing the work of three people, the body of Christ is stunted. Our growth is stunted. Because God's designed it in a way where every part has something to share. And when every part does a share, that's a healthy body and the body grows and it flourishes and there's a healthy edification that happens. So what a, just a great reminder, we all have something to share and we all have a responsibility like these two and a half tribes to say, look, it's not just about me. It's about the victory of other people and I need to be there to help other people and to minister and serve in those ways and that brings about the fullness of experiencing God's best as Israel would go into the land. This is why these tribes needed to do this. Well, he says going on in verse 16, so they answered Joshua hearing this injunction saying, I love this, all that you command us, we will do and wherever you send us, we will go. I love the way that reads there. All that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. The way that they respond to Joshua as their leader in that sense, I look at that and I want to read verse 16. So they answered Jesus, saying, All that you command us, we will do, and everywhere, wherever you send us, we will go. But wouldn't that be a great way to live in response to our Joshua, to Jesus? To say, Jesus, all that you command us, we'll do. Whatever you command us, we want to obey you, whether that's your written word. Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. So whether it's the obedience of his written word or whether it's the obedience of his spirit saying, I want you to do this. I want you to say sorry there. I want you to go help that person. I want you to, whatever he commands us, that, that we do what he asks, and wherever he wants to send us, we would go. And if he says, look, this is where I want you to be. I know that's where he used to be, but this is where I want you to be. Or this is what I want you to do, that wherever he wants to send us, we will let him direct our steps, 
and guide our paths and we would just obey whatever he asks us to do. Really, that's what lordship is. That, that's a picture of lordship there, verse 16, in just this beautiful statement the Holy Spirit gives us of how they responded to Joshua. Well, verse 17, they then say to him, just as we heeded Moses in all things. Now, that's a stretch, isn't it? <laughs> Joshua's probably thinking, I don't know if I want to use that as a comparison. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses and whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. So you know, beautiful, at least they're, they're you know, conveying their loyalty to Joshua. And I'm sure as a, as a new leader, that felt very encouraging, you know, as he transitional takes over the role of leadership how beautiful you know for them to humbly affirm their loyalty to him and say listen you're god's new leader we'll respect you we will follow you uh, we'll make sure to adhere to your leadership as well i'm sure that was very encouraging and then they say at the end of verse 18 only be strong and of good courage now, now i find that very insightful there that as they're affirming their loyalty to Joshua as their new leader, they say to Joshua, only be strong and of good courage. Where did Joshua hear that statement? From the Lord. When in verses 1 through 9, the Lord was given a personal word to Joshua, I don't get the sense that was something public that was going on. I get the sense that the Lord is trying to encourage him as a new leader and a man who's facing a challenge in his life that he's a little intimidated by, saying, Joshua, you don't have to be afraid. Be strong. Be courageous. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'll help you. And now, isn't it interesting that they, as they're just speaking to Joshua, reiterate the same statement that he had just heard from the Lord three times reinforced to him? Joshua, only be strong and be of good courage. You know what that's called? Confirmation. It's called confirmation. And perhaps you've experienced this in your life where the Lord's speaking to you maybe in your personal devotional time or you sense that God's saying something to you. And I find it like Joshua. When the Lord's trying to say something to me like Joshua, I tend to hear the same thing repetitiously. I'm kind of a slow learner and I'm a little bit thick. And so sometimes if God wants me to you know, uh, know something in June, he starts talking to me about it in January. And, and, and he tells me in January and then he tells me again in February. And, and as I'm still praying, because I don't want to be presumptuous, then he kind of reminds me again in February. And, and so then when I get to June, which is usually like God tells me six months in advance. So if I need to do it in June, he starts telling me in January. <laughs> So that when June comes and it's the time to act, I'm, I think God's telling me something. And, and I'm pretty sure about it because he's been telling me for the past six months. And, but this is what the Lord does. Sometimes he'll, he'll repeat the same message. The same signal keeps being shot across our bow. And sometimes it's the Lord speaking to us personally. And then sometimes God uses a confirming word where all of a sudden somebody says like the same thing that maybe has been Reminating in your heart as, as you've been reading or God's words and then all of a sudden somebody makes a statement and you're like, oh my goodness. That's what God, how did they know that's what, God's been, that's what God's been saying to me? Because God's now speaking through someone else and there's that word of confirmation sometimes that you know maybe comes from a Christian friend or someone that's, you know, you're listening to on the radio or whatever and then that same statement comes again confirming. And I'm sure that made Joshua feel, guess what? Really encouraged. Wow, now they just said what God's been saying to me. Wow, this is the Lord, man. They just said, be strong and of good courage. And I bet that really gave him a boost of encouragement to take on this new ministry role. Well, chapter two, verse one says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, this isn't a lack of faith. This is just wise military strategy. God's told him in a few days you're going to go in and take the land. But he has no military guidance yet of what that's going to be. So uh, he here, it's sort of a, an information gathering opportunity here. He takes two spies. He sends them out. Two covert spies go in under you know, a kind of a secretive operation. He says, look, go and, and gather information. 
Find out more about the land, the passageways, especially check out the area of Jericho, he says, and and get some information uh, from that particular location. It is interesting when he sends out two spies to consider the number, isn't it? How many did he send? Two. Remember last time that a group of spies went in the land? There were 12. (laughs) And 10 of them came back with a very negative, bad report. Two of them had belief in what God was telling them to do. That was Joshua himself, remember, and Caleb, the only two who are still alive, the old heads out of the group here. This is all the brand new generation. And Joshua says, I don't think we're going to do that dozen spy thing again. That big committee thing didn't work real well last time. We don't need 12 people to hear from God. Two people are more than sufficient if they're sincere. So he just sends two spies. That's enough. Let's not push it. Last time, only two came back with the right report, and we wandered in the wilderness for 38 years because... So I just find it amusing. He sends in two spies. He tells them to go in, view the land, gather information so they could strategize what might be the right approach. They could, again, make a well-informed decision as God starts to guide their steps forward. But he says, especially evaluate the area of Jericho. Uh, And that's, of course, because that's going to be the first city we'll see that they will, in a sense, experience victory over in the the, the book of Joshua, the area of Jericho. And Jericho was basically about five miles west of the Jordan from where they're at at this point. It's sort of right situated in the center of what we might call the, the promised land area there. And it's interesting that that is where God would have them to go first because as they would go there and conquer Jericho, that would give them a a very strong then base of operations because it was right in the center of the country. And then from there, as they conquered that, they could then, if you would, we use the term divide and conquer. They could then from there go north and conquer that way and they could go south and conquer that way. And so the idea of divide and conquer here, God uses that principle sometimes. So he says, especially check out Jericho. Jericho in that time period, historically was a walled city it it was strong and fortified it was formidable formidable city it was thought to be impregnable we're going to see as they come to that these you know strong walls that are there but as they conquer jericho and if they're able to conquer jericho god knows that will give them incredible encouragement wow we conquered jericho certainly we should trust the lord to to conquer more territory so he says Focus on the area of Jericho, and that's where they go, as they would go directly across the Jordan and over to that area. It says, verse 1 going on, So they went, and they came to the house of a harlot, the prostitute, named Rahab, and they lodged there. So as they go into the land, they make a connection and end up lodging and staying with this woman who come to find out is actually a prostitute in this very pagan city that's there. Now, there are those commentators who tend to look at the idea of, you know, why in the world, of all places, I mean, here you go, you finally get into the land and the first two guys go in and stay at a prostitute's house. What in the world is this? You get into the land and the first thing you do is go and, you know, hang out at a hooker's house. That doesn't sound like a really good start to going in and conquering the territory. And some people look at this and say, oh, well, you know, the reason why is because that would kind of be like in that day, you know, uh, almost like, you know, if you went to the local bar and everybody's talking there and if you're going to gather information, you know, a lot of times that's the place to gather information. Go sip a 7-Up in a local bar and you'll find out everything going on in town, good, bad, and ugly, and you'll find out a whole lot about a territory. I don't personally see that as much as what I see taking place. It's not that they're thinking, well, this will be a secretive spot and and men are always going in and out of this prostitute's house and nobody would ask questions and they don't ask your name. And uh, some look at it as it's kind of a way to keep things secretive. Quite honestly, I just see it as the sovereign direction of God. The Bible says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And as they just go into the area, I think God just sovereignly directs their steps that they meet this woman. And lo and behold, this woman they meet, yes, she is a prostitute, but we'll see as we read the chapter, she was a prostitute who was beginning to have fear of Yahweh God and who was beginning to have faith in Yahweh God. So what God does is he directs their steps to a woman who not only will not turn them into the authorities, 
and allow them to be successful, but God directs them to a woman whose heart is prepared spiritually to not only receive them, but she's actually ready to receive the Lord we're going to see ultimately. And this is a beautiful thing. And basically you have God sovereignly directing them to a woman that he has already prepared to be ready for this hour and for this moment. This is always the way God works. Sometimes God will sovereignly direct our steps and God's always working on both sides. It's like the story in Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius. God tells Peter to go to Cornelius' house and the reason why is because God's already been talking to Cornelius and he tells Cornelius, go get Peter and Peter's gonna come talk to you. And you have this story where when God's at work, he's always working on both ends. When God's at work to join people, he's working in this person's life over here and they have no idea that God is working the same thing in this person's life over here. And he's working in that person's life and that person has no idea that God is working in this person's life and God's individually working in two lives as he's bringing a plan together so that the right people intersect for the right moments and the right reasons. And this is a beautiful picture of this where God directs them to this woman's house because perhaps anyone else would have instantly said spies in the land and the whole thing would have been ruined and sabotaged. But this woman instead helps them and cooperates because God's already been preparing her heart sovereignly and so she is very in a sense accommodating and helpful to the people of God and assist them as servants of the Lord. Look at verse two, it says, and so it was told the king of Jericho Word got out. He had his own apparently spy agency as well. Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who've entered to your house, for they have come to search out all the country. So in a sense, the the local authorities, the police department, if you would, shows up at Rahab's house and says, hey, We have intelligence that tells us that two spies from those people camped on the other side of the Jordan have just come into this land to spy out our city and they're lodging in your house. Bring them out so we can take them in custody. Verse 4, the woman took the two men and hid them. Notice she didn't turn them in because God had prepared her heart. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they come from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. They left already, she says. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly for you may perhaps overtake them. Maybe you can catch up if you get started. Verse 6, but it says she had brought them up to the roof. Remember, they had flat roofs in that day. And hidden them with stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So uh, she plays very savvy and as a, a... a harlot, a prostitute. She was probably good with words and these kind of things. And so as they come and say, hey, there are, there are men in your house. We have intelligence. She says, well, listen, I, you know, I, I don't really, you know, we, we usually don't ask questions around here. You know, the, we, we don't take names of our customers. We just, we don't, we don't do that kind of thing. And yeah, there were two men here, but they came and they've gone like everybody else. But if you get a good head start, before nightfall, maybe you can catch them and, and, and head that way. And she kind of sends them off while she's hidden them, it says, up in the roof, giving them safety and security so that they're not captured and perhaps even probably put to death in the process. Now, of course, we look at that and we say, wait a minute, she's lying there. Is God endorsing lying in the Bible? Is, is this somehow, what's going on here? Just to help and spare God's servant, she tells a lie. And is that trying to indicate that the end justifies the means and just because the end result is they're spared and protected it justifies the means she used to protect them and to keep them alive and is that right that the end justifies the means no let me say something that is very critical for the study of the entirety of the bible just because something is recorded in the word of god does not mean that god endorses it or god approves of it it's just recorded by god There are a lot of things you're going to read in the scripture that God just honestly records. Even think of how God doesn't hide the failures of his own servants. He tells us about Moses' failures and David's failures. God doesn't clean up the word of God. The Bible is God's divine record and sometimes God records things in the Bible. But be careful of saying just because you read something in the Bible that that automatically means that God endorses it 
or that God approves of. Sometimes people, well, I read about this in the Bible. Right, you read about it in the Bible. You read about, I'll give a perfect example. How come you see all these men have multiple wives? Well, just because you read that doesn't mean God endorses it. The Bible is very clear from Genesis. God calls one man, one woman to live in a monogamous relationship. God doesn't endorse polygamy or bigamy or multiple marriages. People did it. God records that they did it, but it doesn't mean God approves it. And it doesn't mean God endorses it. Same here. You have a woman who either at this point, keep in mind, at this point is she's drawing close to becoming a believer. She's not yet. Or maybe she's just a very young, brand new believer with very you know, simple faith in Yahweh God, but she knows very little of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh God. So she doesn't have much of a moral basis yet. She's either a brand new convert, if you would, or she's someone who's not yet a convert. And so therefore, she doesn't have the strongest moral basis. She's growing still. She's figuring things out. When you first got saved, did you have it all together? Please don't say yes, because you still don't, nor do I. <laughs> None of us do, right? We grow, we mature. And so here she, you know, she's trying to do the best she can. She's in faith wanting to help them. So she tells a lie and hides them upstairs. And again, God records it, but yet it doesn't mean that it's right that she did it. She could have not lied and trusted God to take care of them. And probably that would have been the better thing to do is that if she didn't lie, God would have protected his servants. But her faith is not there yet in Yahweh God. She doesn't understand that yet. But uh, we should never, ever, ever think that God wants us to compromise in order to meet some end goal of his. We never have to compromise spiritually or morally like we see here to make it work out for God. God's not limited. So be careful of thinking, well, look, I had to lie because if I didn't lie, God's will wouldn't have come to pass. You know, If I didn't tell some falsehoods, the business deal would have fell through or she wouldn't have gone out with me. Or You, know, you don't have to do that. You just, you be honest. You honor the Lord and God's not limited. God will take care of things. But she tells the lie. She hides them. Our story goes on, verse 7. The men then pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords as soon as those who had pursued them had gone out they then shut the gate now before they lay down for the night she came up to the roof and she said to the men i know now look at her faith here look at this i know that the lord see the title she uses capital l o r d yahweh god jehovah the covenant name of yahweh god she knew that name i know that the lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard, notice, of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. But she heard the testimony of God's power and that what you did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, look what she says, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's what I call a confession of faith. She says, we've heard of your God and we're terrified of him. We realize that your God, the Lord, is the true God of heaven and earth. And so this woman, again, you see her heart was prepared spiritually. This is why this is who they connected with. And she expresses her very feeble but yet very sincere confidence and faith that he is Yahweh God. Verse 12, now therefore, she says, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you this kindness that you will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token, a, a symbol of assurance. Spare my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all that I have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall and she dwelt on the wall and that was at times customary in that day to actually build their houses their little condo right in the walled cities 
which means that this woman was doing pretty well if you got a house right in the wall rather than living in the village outside. This was somebody who was somewhat affluent as well. So she lets them down and they said, uh, she said to them, verse 16, get to the mountain lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned and can't find you and afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, verse 17, we will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet, scarlet red, a scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers and all your father's household to your, into your home. So it shall be whoever goes outside of the doors of this house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. Whoever's with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath that you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. The idea is, amen, so be it. I believe it. I accept it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound, look, she did it right away. She bound the scarlet red cord in the window and they departed and went to the mountain, stayed there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers sought them along the way but did not find them. So she basically pleads for mercy. She knows really that in a sense her and her city and her family in essence are under the judgment of God. She senses that. So she says, please, since I've helped you, will you now have mercy upon me? Will you as representatives of the one true God, please spare me, spare my family, have mercy upon me. And, and, and I realize that, that we are already under the sentence of destruction. But is there any way that we can be spared? I'm pleading with you for mercy. And they say to her, listen, if you do two things, don't tell anybody what's happened. In other words, uh, honor our privacy so that we're not caught before we get back. And they say, and all we're asking you to do is put this scarlet cord in the window, this interesting red rope, the same rope that they were lowered down by. Put that in the window. When we come up to your territory, that will be a symbol to us to show mercy to you and spare you when, when judgment comes upon the rest of the city. Now, think about this. In many ways, does that not picture that scarlet red cord just like in the Passover when God told them to put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils of their homes and whoever was in the home, family or individuals believing was spared and the angel of the judgment of death passed over that household. Now here, of course, very symbolically, this cord that scarlet red is hung out the window and basically this scarlet red cord, think about it, that which spared the spies, right? Because that's how they were let down by this same rope. That which spared the spies is the same thing that will spare and save her as well. And basically, they had to trust in the rope as they were being let down. And she now has to trust in that scarlet red rope to be her deliverance and the mercy that will spare her. It's a picture of faith. It's a picture of faith to be saved and delivered. This woman was saved not by her good works. She was saved by her faith, by believing the promise that was given to her, by believing God and the promise that was given to her that if you trust in this red cord and put it there in faith, you'll be spared and you'll be delivered. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. How the blood of Christ and our trust in the blood of Jesus and the finished work of Christ spares us from judgment and destruction that we deserve spiritually and eternally. And it's our faith in that that allows us to be delivered. And there's this beautiful picture of salvation even demonstrated there within that very thing. Of this woman, keep in mind, who's what? Very unworthy. She's a hooker. She's a prostitute. This wasn't a good moral woman. It had nothing to do with her morals or her reforming herself. It had everything to do with her faith. Her faith and her faith alone. That's what spared her. That's what gave mercy from God to her. Verse 23, So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen him. And they said to Joshua, Truly, 
The Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So, great encouragement for Joshua. It worked. Only two spies. <laughs> and they came back with a good report. They said, Joshua, be encouraged. God's with us. He's already struck fear into the hearts of our enemies. We're going to succeed. They're faint-hearted because of this. We should take courage in the Lord. And again, all of this because of the incredible use of this woman being encouraging and this woman who in many ways was unworthy to be used as a vessel or servant of the Lord, but because of the mercy of God and the grace of God and her faith alone, God uses her as an instrument as a part of the plan of God. Now here's what I want you to hold on to in your heart for meditation and perhaps even for spiritual homework. When you trace Rahab into the New Testament, this isn't the end of Rahab's life. Read Matthew chapter 1. Rahab is one of only... A few women who make it into the lineage, Matthew chapter 1, of the line of Jesus. This woman becomes a true believer in Yahweh God and goes from being someone who's an immoral prostitute to a princess of the king of kings and actually one of the line of the lineage of David that gives birth to our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Do you want to talk about a picture of how God can redeem any life and use it for his good purposes. That's our story. God takes us from the pit and he says, Look, I don't care what your past is. I can save you and redeem you and I can use you in a mighty way. When you read the book of Hebrews in James chapter 2, Rahab shows up again as an example of faith. And God's not ashamed to call upon her as his example of great faith. In James 2, God says, Faith without works is dead. And then God says, let me give you an illustration of that. He picks Abraham as one illustration of how faith and works go together. True saving faith will work. Of course, Abraham, the father of faith. Okay, how many other Bible characters are left in there? All kinds of good quality ones that God could pick another one. And he says, now let me give you one more example. Rahab the harlot. And God takes this woman and her simple faith alone. Listen, God can use women. God can use people with shady pasts. God can use the most unlikely individuals. This woman did not have it all together. By all means, she just lied. But she had faith. And if you have faith in the Lord and you yield your life to the Lord, there is no limit to the extent that God can use you if you make yourself available to Him. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you what, let's stand together and let's take a few moments and... and prayer together let's do this this evening something different let's just take a few moments and and just pray together for a few moments and then we'll have jane come and close us in a final song or two but let's just let's just spend a few moments in prayer together tonight as we close out our study if somebody wants to lead off feel free to father we thank you that in the teaching tonight lord you again lord show us that you repeat things over and over again we read through the stories in your word, Father, that, that we see repeated over and over again, that you're the God that never changes, that you're the 